Your personality creates your personal reality. Authentic power is when your personality comes to serve the energy of your soul. The truth is the body is one ecosystem. You can get to the root cause and everything goes away. Thank you for tuning in to the Recondition podcast. I'm Lauren Vaknin. I'm a health writer and holistic wellness coach. And my own journey from disability to remission taught me that wellness through a mind-body approach can take time when we don't know where to begin. And that's why I created this podcast, to bring you the answers to all your well-being questions in the most accessible way possible. Whether you're suffering from chronic illness, raising children in a world of conflicting information, or you simply want to feel empowered and motivated to become the best version of yourself, join me along with expert guests as we uncover the most actionable ways to recondition ourselves back to wellness. Hello lovely listeners, thank you so much for being here on my first episode of the podcast as it is in its new incarnation. Uh, If you're a little bit confused as to what's going on, this used to be the Healthy Happy Home podcast with me, Lauren Vaknin and Tilly Wood, but it's now called Reconditioned with Lauren Vaknin. Uh, Tilly and I still remain really good friends. We just felt that the podcast was moving away from what the original intention was for it, which was health and growth. Uh, Tilly is super into the health stuff in her personal life, but her focus really is more on home and lifestyle. So she's going to be starting a podcast all to do with that. And I've taken this one over to really home in on my passion, which is wellness. Um, So when I was thinking about how to restructure this podcast to really keep in line with what I teach and write and speak about, I knew I had to work really hard to make my message clear because I didn't want it to go off of my intention Um, I wanted to be able to fit it on the episode intros (laughs) but it ends up being too long and my producer just wouldn't let me so I'm going to quickly read out kind of the premise that I live by which is wellness is not merely the absence of illness it is a state of complete physical mental emotional and spiritual well-being Um, and I really do live by that statement So my work looks at wellness, not as kind of a linear new age concept, but really as the four modes of self, those modes that I just described, integrated into one, enabling us to reach our full health and happiness potential. What I did put in there was whether you're suffering from chronic illness, raising children in a world of conflicting information, or you simply want to feel empowered and motivated to become the best version of yourself... Uh, And I did leave those in there because this podcast will cover so many aspects of wellness, all of them, which is why it's appropriate for anyone looking to be healthy or get healthy or stay healthy or expand their knowledge. And that little quote I just said about wellness is not just the absence of illness. It's something that's so poignant and true for me, which you'll understand when I take you through my story in a minute, which I thought would be a great way to kind of introduce the new incarnation of this podcast. But it was also important for me to put it in there about raising children in a world of conflicting information because there's so much advice out there and part of my passion is to research and fully inform myself on everything I do, uh, sometimes to the extreme, with my own health and that of my children. So I wanted this to be a place where you could feel guided on those things, Um, not just by me but by expert guests that I'll have on because there is so much conflicting information and I really want this to be a place where where you feel as a listener that you can come to find the information that will help guide you to make an informed choice about all of those aspects of parenting and about your own health and about staying healthy Um, and that's why it was important for me to put that in there and the last bit I left in about simply wanting to feel empowered and motivated to become the best version of ourselves because wellness is about so much more than not having a disease or did you breastfeed or not or did you eat a kale and quinoa salad for lunch so using the model of conflating physical mental emotional and spiritual well-being i found for me really is the only way to truly be healthy and happy why happy because when we work on and improve all those aspects of ourselves we live at our optimum states and if you feel good physically you can do more If you work towards finding your purpose through self-optimization, you can have the career you want, not just the one you think you should have to pay the bills or to make other people happy. And if you work on unraveling and freeing yourself from older emotional blocks and 
subconscious limiting beliefs that hold us back. You can live a life without restraint and without anxiety and without pain. And I'm telling you this because I've done it. And my journey was a three decade long one. So this season has really been curated very intentionally of making a mind body approach to life, not just health, but life accessible to everyone. Uh, That means financially, socially, psychologically. Um, The content in this season will appeal to you, whoever you are, if you're suffering from chronic illness and have chosen a groovy nutrition plan, that's great. Awesome, in fact. But if you're failing to nourish your mind, heart and spirit with equal devotion, you won't heal fully. Equally, if you're taking meditation and journaling seriously to help your anxiety or mental health issues, but you're eating rubbish, equally there can be no healing. I believe that well-being requires an integrative approach and my podcast is here to help you to make those changes and know where to start and what options there are. Your healing genuinely is my life's passion and I'm here to support you so please make sure you subscribe to the podcast and follow me on Instagram. I'm at Lauren Vacney. So to make this all make a little bit more sense, and for those who don't know yet, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about my story so that it all kind of fits into place, all the stuff I've kind of been going on about for the last five minutes. A few months before my second birthday, my parents noticed swelling around my ankles, and they took me to the doctor who at first said, oh, it must be growing pains, but my mum just had this niggle. She just knew that it wasn't growing pains, and she knew that it was something a bit more serious. Um, And then it moved to my knees and so I had swelling around both knees and both ankles and so she kept taking me back and rejected the term growing pains until someone listened to her. And I was booked in for a biopsy because no one could see what was wrong with me at the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital which we were lucky was five minutes from our house still is. And um, I was booked in and I, my mum and I stayed there overnight to be to have the biopsy in the morning and in the morning the paediatric rheumatologist who came round to see me before the biopsy, we hadn't met him yet and he just took one look at me and pulled his glasses down from his face and said, Mrs Vacneen, your daughter doesn't need a biopsy, she's got Stills disease. Obviously at the time my parents had no idea what Stills disease was Uh, he said it was, um, obviously she looked at him like, what the hell is Stills disease? And he said it's juvenile rheumatoid arthritis or juvenile idiopathic arthritis as it was sometimes called. Idiopathic means no defined cause. So my parents thought I had magically acquired a chronic disease out of the blue that only affected elderly people where in fact the figures were a lot lower actually in 1986, a lot lower. Uh, they are around, It's about 12,000 children with JRA in the UK today. The only treatment at the time was steroids, which was given in really high doses because the top paediatric rheumatologists of the time were suggesting that steroids in very high doses for very small children will knock it on the head. And unfortunately, 15 years later, that uh, all those uh, rheumatologists, but specifically one, who was one of the top in the country and happened to be my paediatric rheumatologist. She was just based at the hospital that was near us. She had to apologise for making a mistake with that statement because she realised that the steroids did not, in fact, knock it on the head. And the children who had subsequently been taking these steroids, oral steroids, for all these years now had joint deformities and had to have joint replacements and osteoporosis as a secondary condition and the girls weren't getting their periods and their growth was stunted, all these side effects. Now, luckily for me, this my mum had another niggle, which was telling, and she knew nothing about natural options, about holistic therapies. This was 1986 and she didn't come from that world at all. Um, But something was afflicting her gut and telling her that she couldn't put her two-year-old on these drugs. So she took herself to the library um, from whence she emerged three days later, deciding upon homeopathy. She knew nothing about homeopathy, but decided that that was the way forward. And so she took me to... My parents didn't have very much money at all, but everything they had they put into taking me for treatments. They found a homeopathic dietitian in Harley Street who put me on a specific diet um, 
of um, no dairy, no gluten, nothing acidic, nothing from aluminium packaging, all these things that now are quite fashionable. But at the time, my mum thought, how the hell, what am I going to feed her? You know, there was no, there were no substitutes then. There were no, there was no Whole Foods shops. I mean, maybe they were, but for people like my parents, they weren't aware of shops like that. So, so the, the interesting thing is that I'd already started going off dairy I'd started rejecting milk a while before my symptoms began so obviously that was my body's innate way of telling me what I shouldn't be having and what would trigger more flare-ups um so my parents did the best they could with kind of keeping my diet as good as possible um the difficulty was that the following year I was diagnosed with another condition called uveitis now children with JRA who are under the age of diagnosed under the age of four, and girls have a higher chance of being diagnosed with uveitis, which is um, a, a condition that is connected with JRA, is inflammation in the iris of the eye. Um, and I was diagnosed with that in my right eye by my third birthday. So my mum basically, you know, we kept going to the doctors and we continued with the hospital appointments. And though my parents felt very strongly about not giving me the oral steroids, the, the treatment for the time at the time for the eyes was topical steroids. So steroid eye drops into the eye. And the difficulty was that with the joints, we could see what was going on. So if I was having a flare up, it was very easy to see if my joints were swollen. But with the eye, we couldn't see unless we went to the hospital and I was too young to tell them what was going on, what I could see, you know, how blurry the eye was at the time. So that scared my mum a lot because she didn't know how to manage that and she didn't feel confident enough managing that <clears throat> without the steroids. So I took the eye drops and I was on multiple eye drops daily. By the time I was four, a homeopathic centre opened in our town of Edgware and so my mum started taking me there to a, her to a herbalist and then to a homeopath. And we carried on with that way. And the doctors told my mum she was crazy. And they told her that it was going to be her fault that my joints were going to be damaged. And I honestly, to this day, don't know how she kept her resolve. She had no kind of education past the age of 15. She was, you know, a PA, a secretary. And my dad was a market trader. They, they didn't come from you know, well-educated, well-to-do background where they had access to this sort of information and yet she kept her resolve. And I just can only think that this was something from above telling her what she needed to do to keep me safe. So I, my childhood wasn't as bad as some of the other kids we knew with arthritis who were on these drugs. I, my childhood was actually a lot better than them. I went to school and I had friends and I had periods where I was okay uh, I had long periods where I was okay, but it was always there and there was always a lot I couldn't do. I couldn't sit on assembly floors or go to the roller skating parties or climbing and soft play parties or go to sleepovers very often. Normal childhood stuff, I had to wear special fluffy warm arthritis shoes and sit on the, you know, sit on chairs with the teachers in assemblies and those things I think end up affecting you uh, as you get older and I, I don't think I realised that until I started writing my memoir um, because the psychological impact of a physical childhood illness leaves many many psychological scars um, because of all the things the ways that you have to be different that you can't make the choices yourself and I think having to be so different to everyone and um, you know not being able to make the choices and being told what I could and couldn't do that leaves its impact. I was also very high, you know, I had sensory overload and I suffered with anxiety, but none of these were words that were in our familial dictionary at the time. These weren't things that we knew about. So I hated loud noises. I never wanted to go to fireworks parties or parties where I knew there were going to be balloons or party poppers. And I was always just, you know, the intense child of Lauren, so difficult stopping, so high maintenance. And uh, that was really difficult for me because I just felt totally misunderstood my whole life. And I know the sensory overload to be very, very much in conjunction with having an autoimmune disease, with the many things that triggered it, uh, which I won't go into now, but there are many nuances there, many uh, different triggering factors. 
Um, and so those things affected me as I got older. But to go back next to the children in the group physio and hydro class I went to, I was different to them. I was the healthiest out of everyone. I was growing, I was stronger, my immune system was strong, uh, and where most of them had stunted growth and, you know, noticeable deformities and these puffy kind of moon faces from the steroids that was so, you know, recognisable to me. It was just normal. But I didn't look like that. I looked normal. And I've always been quite tall. My dad's really tall. And I was always towards being the tallest in my class, which is really unusual for a child with arthritis. So what was happening, the homeopathy wasn't curing me, but it was strengthening my immune system at least. So why wasn't it curing me? It wasn't curing me at the time because a root cause approach needs a way more holistic overview than just using one modality and not changing anything else and hoping it works. So my parents, you know, are, 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 my dad is from the Middle East, our diet was very Mediterranean and generally very healthy, but in the 80s and the early 90s, no one really knew about what healthy diet actually meant. We ate fresh food every day and my mum cooked a fresh meal every single night. There was no oven food in our house, but equally we would then have a Diet Coke with dinner or those sugar-free squashes which would have aspartum in them or, you know, chocolates and all these things. And we just didn't know. My parents did the very, very best they could with the information they had, but it was very fragmented because they didn't have all the information they needed to be able to create complete wellness. They didn't know that sugar causes inflammation, you know, all things like that, or, or, or things which would prevent my body from effectively detoxifying, like the aspartum or, um, you know, in the Diet Coke and the sugar-free squash. So we went to the homeopath and my parents did the best they could with the little information that they had, but it wasn't enough to hope for remission because there were so many other factors at play. Uh, this was just one small example of why I never got fully better at that time. There was just so much about the body and the state of disease that we just didn't understand. So over the years, I had steroid injected and fluid drained from my joints many times. And during bad flare-ups, I would have the eye injected with steroid, followed by a week-long stay in hospital. It was very up and down. You know, I did have good periods, but it was up and down. And my childhood was very much marred by having an illness. It was my identity. It became my identity. And as I grew into a teenager, I rebelled against that because I just wanted to be normal. But when I got to high school, things really stabilised and I had a good few years that, you know, I kind of wouldn't have even... I, I'm actually... My husband was in my class at school and we only met... You got together 10 years after leaving school and when we got together, he said, I, I just never knew. I would never would have known that you had anything wrong with you. And that's how good my high school years were. I did hide it as well when I had flare-ups, but the psychological impact of the first 11 years of my life really took its toll... I'd never known life without chronic disease or without being different. So when I was at high school and seemed normal and no one knew anything was wrong with me, I just tried tirelessly to keep that up, to do whatever I could to fit in. And I thought I could take control with food, which led to an eating disorder. And I didn't know it at the time, but I just didn't know who I was or even what I liked because all my efforts went into making people like me to getting, you know, I had these dark circles under my eyes, which kind of disappeared when I was young, I suppose, from having lots of pain. And they just never went away. And so I would spend, this is just a small analogy, but I would just spend all my pocket money on trying to find the best concealers and try, you know, I'd spend lunch times and break times getting out my little compact mirror and putting more on. And I, I mean, I looked ridiculous, but I was just trying to cover up anything that made me look different. And so the psychological impact of a physical disease is so much more far-reaching than most people realise. Children with illnesses from a young age need to be offered support in a way that most people, and I think even maybe today, don't understand, although we do have a much better understanding now than it was then. And I think things like sensory overload is understood a lot better now. Um, and, you know, children with differences, it is understood, and we talk to our children today a lot more about differences and bullying and being kind no matter how different people are so I think that's um that's definitely an improvement 
But when, because I felt so different, when I found drama and joined a drama agency, I felt for the first time like I fit in. So despite having talents in English, I never saw them. And the reason I never saw them was because of literally trying to spend all my efforts trying to be liked. I never tried to cultivate what I was good at. I had no idea what I was good at. And looking back, I know that, you know, I can see that I was always meant to be a writer. There were so many signs there. But again, I was so defined by my illness that even my parents and teachers didn't think to look at what else could define me or what I might be good at. As is the case in the education system, we are forced to focus on the things we don't enjoy, the things that we're really bad at. So I was really bad at numbers. So I was given a maths tutor and put in the lowest sets and pushed to do more maths. And so I hated it. And But I was really good at writing and I was always writing. And I had an amazing, I wrote an amazing piece for my uh, GCSE coursework, which my teacher at the time had said was the best piece of GCSE coursework she'd ever seen. And she was going to use it as a reference for her A-level students. And I'd, we'd ha- we had to write an essay about something that interested us, a topic that interested us. And I wrote about slavery in America, in the South. And we weren't learning about this. This was something I was reading about. And I look back now, and when I assess the education system, because this is also, this goes with holistic well-being. You know, holistic education is a massive part of this, which is why... I'm talking about this now in case you think this is a bit irrelevant. Had that teacher at the time said to me, Lauren, you know what, you've got talent and maybe stay on at sixth form and study English, go to university. If you want to still study drama, you can do it alongside, but you know, you've got a talent here. Had someone believed in me, I would have listened <laughs> because I. there are those children who will just, no matter what circumstances they come from, they have strength of character and they're like, I'm going to make it. I believe in myself. I wasn't one of those. I never believed in myself. And I had literally no belief in my ability to do anything. So one person telling me that they believed in me, I believe would have perhaps convinced me to stay on at school and do those things and understand and realise my potential and my destiny earlier on. Now, I'm fully aware that that wasn't meant to happen for me in my journey went as it went, which I will explain soon, um, as bad as it got, so that I could be be brought to what I'm doing right now. And I had to get as sick as I got so that I could work as hard as I did to get well and to get fully well. But it's just a little bit of, um, you know, a little bit, a tidbit of information about how we can support children in their strengths, not their weaknesses, in order to help them to thrive and how not to let children with any differences, illnesses, conditions, be defined by that condition. So anyway, I opted to leave school at 16 and go to performing arts school. And I loved it. But during the second year, I had a huge flare up. It seemed out the blue, but what was happening with my joints was kind of just a follow on from what was happening with my eye, uh, which was um, that after all the years of inflammation and steroid eye drops, I had cataracts and it wasn't just one cataract, it was one cataract growing over another, growing over another, growing over another. It was it was a real uh, situation going on. And my eye started going really what I called misty. I could barely see and it was just getting worse and worse and worse. Um, at the same time, I got involved in a really bad crowd and started doing drugs in an attempt to escape this life that I had, you know, seemingly this hand that I'd been dealt and my looming disability, which I knew was coming and tried to deny. But I mean, I did everything I shouldn't have done. I was involved with a real, you know, awful crowd. And I did many drugs and made myself even worse, of course. But what I was doing was using marijuana to dull the pain and using cocaine to, um, I suppose fuel my uh, self-worth and that was just how it went and then I managed to get through to the end of college but once I'd finished college I became really sick and the doctors the eye doctors were saying that I needed to go on a drug because they couldn't operate on the eye to remove the the cataracts um, because there was too much activity in the eye and they couldn't get the inflammation down without the medication so it was just this kind of no-win situation and they wanted to put me on a drug called methotrexate which is a chemo-based drug 
And at the time I was, th- I, you know, I thought I was an adult and what the hell has this homeopathy been doing all my life? It's obviously done nothing. Look at where I am. My parents don't know anything. And I was almost quite excited to take this leap into conventional medicine and into, into conventional healthcare and see what happened. And so I started on methotrexate and before taking it, I had arthritis in my knees and my ankles. Uh, within three months, I was gravely ill. I was losing my hair, I was vomiting and bloated, I had ulcers all over my body, Uh, I was so weak that I could barely move, and by 10 months on the drug, the arthritis had spread to every joint in my body, so from my jaw down to my toes, and I couldn't walk, I couldn't go to the toilet myself, I couldn't feed myself because I couldn't bend my my elbows enough to get the food in my mouth, I couldn't grip cutlery. On the worst days, I couldn't even sit up because my hips were too stiff. So I would just have to sit at kind of an obtuse angle all day in extreme pain. And I went back to my rheumatologist who'd known me since I was four. Um, And despite knowing me since I was four, she called me Laura instead of Lauren when I got wheeled in by my mum in a wheelchair and didn't bat an eyelid to the fact that I was in in a wheelchair. And all of a sudden I woke up because I thought she'd gasp in horror at me being in a wheelchair. And she didn't. And I thought, whoa, this is how she expected it to go. And all she said to me was, methotrexate works for for 70% of people, sorry, and for 30% it doesn't work. And I said to her, I mean, I knew nothing about anything. I'd done no research at this point. I was 18, but I was horrified at being thought of as a statistic. And I just instinctively knew that this wasn't the case, that there must be more to how medications work than that and to how illness works and to how illness uh, is triggered. And I just vowed then and there that I wouldn't live my life as a statistic. And I spent the next decade honouring that vow. (laughs) Um, And it wasn't that easy. It wasn't an overnight thing at all. I took myself to Israel to have a treatment um, and lived with my family out there to have a a holistic treatment that was uh, integrate seven different types of holistic therapies into one, which did help me get better. Uh, Within three months, I was a lot better. And within six months, I came home with no symptoms. The problem was that I didn't understand still that I had to take responsibility for this myself. I went and I had a treatment by someone else that had done the research and was a doctor and knew what he was doing. And I hadn't yet acknowledged that this needed to be my thing. I needed to take responsibility for my health because this was my body. So I realised then when I got sick again after a year that if every time I get sick I'm going to wait for someone else to get me better, I'm never going to be free from this. So that's when I really started immersing myself in intensive self-study and covering nutrition, where I eventually qualified as a nutritionist, and autoimmunity, inflammatory conditions, hormones, epigenetics, neuroplasticity, meditation, what triggers onset of disease, everything, everything I could, I immersed myself in. Um, And spirituality, you know, my parents had taken me to a spiritual healer when I was younger, and I'd forgotten all of that, so I really went deep back into meditation and the spiritual side of things, and I, you know, kept getting better and then ill again, and and, until I kind of found the missing pieces and realised that I had to take responsibility for my own health and had to learn everything myself, and I guess, I mean, it wasn't as if I was sitting in my bedroom for 11 years studying and then emerged like a butterfly miraculously healed, it was a real journey, but it would take me too long to take you through all of it. Um, One thing that needs to be said is after the medication as well, my eye still wasn't better. And uh, in fact, it was even worse. And a few years after that, I woke up one morning to see that I couldn't see anything out of my eye and a film had grown totally over my eye. So my my eye was completely white. There is a picture of that on my Instagram somewhere. Um, I like to put these pictures up as a reminder and at the time it's a shame because I remember being embarrassed of being in a wheelchair all these things and I never let anyone take pictures apart from my wedding there is a picture of me in a wheelchair on my wedding but um, so I had the operation as an emergency because the pressure in the eye had dropped to zero so the operation they were always too scared to do they then did as an emergency and thank god I didn't lose the eye which was one of the risks 
and they had to remove the lens because obviously when you there was so much inflammation the lens was so damaged so and they were never able to replace it so now the vision I have in the eye is a bit like a camera without a lens it's kind of blurry and but it's fine you know my my brain has acclimatized to that and I have been given contact specialist contact lenses over the years but my brain can't really function with two working eyes now so I get really dizzy but at some point I know I'll go back to it and try again I think I had to kind of get over the early years of parenthood as well where I wasn't so tired and so my eyes felt normal but I know I'll go back to it but the important thing from all of this is the lessons I learned which I would like to take you through so here are the lessons number one nothing is idiopathic everything has a cause Number two, no one pill or indeed one holistic modality can cure anything. It's up to us to learn about our bodies, to realise we are from nature and to provide our bodies with everything they need in order to function at an optimum level. Number three, mindset is everything. I can have the best diet in the world, but if I'm operating from a place of negativity with a lack mentality, nothing will change because neuroplasticity has taught us that we can rewire our brains to change neural pathways that create our destiny I even put this in my intro if you rewind back to the intro of this podcast that will be on every episode Joe Dispenza we create our own destiny we our personality creates our personal reality it's a huge 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 part of it and number four our genes are not our destiny I'm a huge, huge advocate of all the work going into epigenetics. Huge scientific advancements in epigenetics have shown us recently that gene expression can be switched on or off depending on our lifestyle and environment, which means taking our healthcare into our own hands really is the only way forward. We know that we can avoid certain genes that we carry, genes that we are genetically predisposed to from being switched on. We can do that ourselves. How amazing is that? I've actually written an article about this that I wrote for What Doctors Don't Tell You and you can find that on my website. It's actually on the front page of my website if you scroll down all about our genes are not our destiny and that will explain more about that. But anyway, so that was my story. I've been in remission for seven years now. I had postpartum flare-ups after both my children. They're now nearly five and two which was actually another important lesson in my journey in understanding that autoimmune diseases don't just go away. They remain dormant. You know, in me, this gene had been switched on for all the many reasons that I won't go into now, but many things can can contribute to gene expression. Um, they remain dormant in the body and it's up to me and the work that I choose to put in that will determine how healthy I stay. So with the uh postpartum stuff with all those postpartum hormones and breastfeeding and you know for me I knew that my children would be genetically predisposed to my genes so coming back to that epigenetic thing I knew that I had to do everything in my power to stop that gene from being switched on so breastfeeding with you know kind of having a calm natural birth and breastfeeding were the first things I could do to protect their gut microbiome and to ensure that their gut and therefore their immune system stayed healthy So it wasn't convenient because I suffered with breastfeeding so badly. One thing I failed to mention, I forgot to mention when I was talking about my story is that, and I'll go through it very quickly just because it is um, pertinent to the story. When I started taking the methotrexate, I was quite flat-chested at the time. I mean, not flat-chested, my breasts were a size B cup. And within the 10 months of taking it, one had grown to a D. And so I had this asymmetry and it was obviously on top of everything else just you know not how I already felt super unsexy and one of the things with suffering from a chronic illness is you don't feel attractive you feel like your body's taken over by this external force this foreign invader and swelling always made me feel very unattractive when I had flare-ups and I had swelling I just I felt disgusting you know I didn't feel nice and I had to that was another journey the self-love journey and the self-acceptance that was another thing altogether Um, and we will go into that at a later date Um, and I have an amazing episode I think it's episode five um, of the podcast when it was healthy happy home with Stevie B who helped me with my body positivity journey but um, I what happened was the NHS then agreed to help me because of what had happened by this drug that they'd given me and um, do um, this corrective surgery which I had a few years after all of that had happened 
And what I hadn't realised until recently when I went back because I wanted to have the implants taken out was I found out that they'd actually done a reduction, which I was told at the time would mean that I couldn't breastfeed. So I said, no, I don't. They said the options were a reduction or implants uh, of varying different sizes and different breasts. And I said, no, I know I want to breastfeed in the future. So um, that was some uh, real mind blowing information and could have been the contributing factor as to why my breastfeeding journey was so hard because um, the, bre- the, the, the the milk ducts were damaged and breast tissue was damaged and my lactation consultant at the time had been a lactation consultant for 15 years and she said she's never said this to a single person and especially knowing my stance and how strongly I felt about it but she said I think you need to stop breastfeeding I don't think I you can continue to do this and I just uh, did everything I could to continue friends of mine who were feeding pumped for me and gave me milk uh, you know, I got donor milk and I had to use formula at specific points where I, I literally couldn't do it. But eventually it passed and it got okay, it got better and I carried on breastfeeding. Um, and I'm still breastfeeding my two-year-old now. So, but it was a real journey. So I think that that contributed to the flare-up as well. Uh, but all these things, you know, when you have a chronic autoimmune disease, even if it's dormant, it is there. And so it's up to us to understand that we have to maintain our levels of, of health in order to um to continue being healthy and to keep these things dormant and yeah it's not convenient at all of course we'd all like to just eat what we want all the time and do what we want but in an age where convenience is omnipotent um I come back to that question that Nicole Sachs speaks about on her podcast the cure for chronic pain which is great by the way if you ever fancy tuning into that she says what hurts life is a is a choice between what hurts and what hurts worse and I so agree with that. It's not convenient to manage what I eat and to spend an hour a day meditating and researching and seeking out the least toxic sunscreens and making my own toothpaste and deodorant, but it's sure as hell a lot less convenient to be disabled (laughs) and take it from someone who's done both. Um, Of course, sometimes it's it's exhausting. I'm not going to be one of these people who sits there and says it doesn't overwhelm me because it does. I'm human and putting the effort into my health like that does overwhelm me sometimes. And sometimes I have days where I'm full of self-pity because, geez, some people just get to go about their lives normally and I have all this extra stuff I have to do. But I feel like if everyone did all that extra stuff, even the people who saw themselves as healthy, they would continue to be healthy. So it's about, we might think we're healthy now, but what's going on under the surface? What's going on with those genes that we can or don't have to switch on? What's going on there? We don't know until illness presents itself. And what my biggest passion in life to do is to prevent that from happening and to teach others to do the same. But then I come back to this when I have those hard days that it's okay to have those days because I'm human and you know what, I'm allowed to indulge in a little bit of self-pity when life feels hard as long as I'm not immersing myself in it. Because the self-pity is an emotion like all others and it needs to be felt and I journal it, you know, I feel it because it feels like an injustice and that's okay. Um, And it should also be said that I live by an 80-20 rule. So if I go out for dinner, to an extent, I eat what I want. Um, And, you know, if I'm on holiday and, you know, I do, I'm not kind of, it's not like I never indulge or never allow myself indulgent pleasures but I think I've also reevaluated what those things are what those enjoyments in life are so for me for example a treat would be you know a hot chocolate that's made from cacao and I would make it with you know ceremonial grade cacao and a date to sweeten it and um you know and maybe some orange essential oil to to give it like a chocolate orange taste that's a treat for me so I think it's also about reassessing what we see as treats and retraining our brains to to know that. Um, so then I also come out with the self-pity and understand that my journey has been the best thing that's ever happened to me because it led me to my destiny. And like I said earlier, if I didn't get as sick as I got, like if I was just a little bit sick, if the arthritis wasn't great but was manageable, I would never have worked as hard as I did to find the answers. So I wouldn't have then written about that journey and my remission. I would never have known I was a writer and I wouldn't be helping other people in their own well-being journeys. And I wouldn't be anywhere near as healthy as I am now. And hopefully preventing future disease because of the work I put in now that I wouldn't have known to do otherwise. And 
I suppose perhaps my most important lesson is that it might look as if people without chronic illness have it good and just get to live their lives, but what does living your life mean if we're not living consciously? If we're eating anything we want without taking responsibility for health prevention, if we're not making the very best health choices for our kids based on, not on the convenient options all around us now, but based on knowing that every decision we make will shape their future. What we put on or in their bodies, how we speak to them, how we conduct ourselves around them. If we're not working on our mindset and allowing ourselves a daily practice that connects us to something bigger and allows the mind the space it doesn't get in our busy lives, if we're not doing all those things, what will it mean later down the line? People can seem to be living their lives, doing what they want and suffering, no implications from that. And like I said, but we don't know what's going on inside the body at any given time. We don't know what's kind of, you know, brewing and what genes are waiting to be switched on. And I used to do this, I'd go into brief periods of remission and then drink and party and eat what I wanted and live rec- recklessly and think I was being free and happy, not understanding that the long-term implications of those decisions would be far more wide-reaching. So I know now that the life I choose to live today determines the future I am giving myself. And it also becomes a lot more second nature once you're in it. So the things that seem daunting to me when I set out are just part of my life now. And they don't seem hard on a daily basis other than those few days where I feel a bit annoyed by it all. And like I said, that's okay. So what it comes down to is that I believe we have to take our healthcare into our own hands and take responsibility for ourselves. That doesn't mean that we know everything and we don't take any guidance. We have to do the work. We have to do the research. If we're out there, though, waiting for doctors and institutions to tell us how to live until the advice changes and then they tell us something else, we'll never be truly well because we're not living to our own authentic code. I'd like to very quickly though take talk you through another glitch because all of that, all of what I've said is true. I am in remission from arthritis, but in April this year, right in the midst of lockdown, I began suffering with trigeminal neuralgia. Now try Googling it. Look for YouTube videos. The first thing it says on any clip about trigeminal neuralgia is suicide disease. So that was fun. Um, It's a supposed defect with the trigeminal nerve in the face, which results in crippling, debilitating attacks of pain, like something I have never experienced in all my years of chronic illness, and I have suffered from chronic illness since before my second birthday, so that's saying a lot. Basically, when attacks happen, it feels like someone's electrocuting my face, and it can happen for minutes at a time or seconds, and these bouts can last for days or weeks. It just changes all the time. When it first started, they were lasting for 20 minutes at a time and I would sit there with my mouth open, drooling, tears falling down my face. I couldn't swallow or lick my lips. I couldn't even cry properly because every movement exacerbated the pain. And I managed to trace it back and figure out the root cause, I think, because I don't think we can heal anything until we understand where it came from. And so I think it's connected with the inflammation I had in the jaw for all those years A wisdom tooth I had removed 13 years ago, which when I read the book Holistic Dental Care by Nadine Artemis, which I highly recommend, that kind of triggered that um, idea. Um, The emotional blocks all connected to my fear of becoming ill again and not being able to live the fulfilled life I dream of. The trauma I experienced navigating both childhood and the early days of motherhood with a chronic illness. And I also have reason to believe the toxicity from the breast implants that I'm trying to now get removed. Um, and I've now got the ball rolling to do that, but all of this takes time, and like I know, like I've learned in the past, conditions take a while to heal, so I am on that journey now, I'm on a new journey of healing, using my own methods of integrating the four aspects of self to hopefully make that a reality, it's up and down, I have good days and I have bad days, and, um, but I am absolutely 100% confident and even in my bad days where I'm in immense amounts of pain and I feel really low I feel 100% confident that I'm going to beat this and I'm going to get rid of it and I want to do that so I can share that information so that when people look up trigeminal neuralgia the first thing they see isn't suicide disease because that's pretty much all I've seen about it um I know that this is another part of my journey like the 
the postpartum flare-ups were to teach me more lessons, to immerse me more in the understanding of illness and remission and true, true well-being. And it's my belief illness is the result not just of pathology, but of a combination of both physical and psychological trauma. There's always so much more to it than an accident caused this. So, yep, I'm managing it. And I'm still carrying on doing my podcast and you will hear some episodes along the season where uh, I might not sound my best because if I'm having a flare up or I'm not having the best day, my I can't open my mouth as much as I want to, but I explain to my guests before they come on because my choice was I either stop my life or I believe that this is going to go and I carry on living my life to the very best of my ability, fulfill all my dreams and live the fulfilled life I dream of so that my brain will get the hint that this is not where my life is going and I will decide, I will be the alchemist of my own life. So based on the fact that the only conventional options for trigeminal neuralgia are anti-epilepsy drugs, antidepressants and an operation that puts a piece of Teflon between the uh, nerve and the artery that's pushing against it, none of which have long-term results from my research. I have obviously decided to use my four modes of wellness integrated into one to heal myself from this and I'm on that journey now. So the first one physical is nutrition. I've started an anti-inflammatory protocol and obviously I've been doing these, be- I, I do these before and I always eat kind of whole foods but at the moment um, aside from the nothing process, no refined sugar, gluten etc, I've taken it to the next level with the help of the incredible biochemist and nutritionist Karen Hurd who you'll hear on the next episode. And I'm doing something called the bean protocol. And other than that, it's obviously all the other stuff as well. It's not just what I put in my body, it's what I put on my body. So all my hygiene products, cosmetics, cleaning products, everything I use, everything we use around us, we turn off our Wi-Fi at night, all these things that I always speak about, which contribute to good health, uh, all come under physical, as well as movement. Um, Karen actually advocates no heavy exercise when you're on the bean protocol. Um, but I kind of do, do my own thing. I'm still doing yoga and I'm still walking a lot and doing light exercise because for me, that is part of my well-being. I need movement. Number two, mental brain training. I'm using an incredible app called Curable for anyone out there suffering from chronic pain. It's the most amazing app. It's one of the most well-developed apps I've ever come across. Uh, I'm also following the work of Dr. John Sarno, all about the mind-body connection when it comes to chronic pain. Curable actually works uh, on Dr. Sarno's ideas of a lot of chronic pain uh, being a direct result of repressed emotions and repressed rage. I've actually got an episode, an incredible episode set up for this with Dr. David Clark, who will be on this season, who's the president of the Psychophysiologic Disorders Association, amongst many other credentials. And I've also been very into the Joe Dispenza work for quite a few years now. So I'm, I'm conflating all that information about neuroplasticity and rewiring the brain and releasing repressed emotions and all of this into my daily practice. Number three is emotional. I'm doing a lot of journaling and I'm blocking old ingrained blocks. What I never realised was that essentially I've never known life without chronic illness. So yes, I've been in remission for seven years, but in that time I've also had the postpartum flares. So how my mind has taught me to see it is every time something good happens, something bad will happen. And actually this has always happened over my life. So it was hard for my cognitive mind to believe that this won't always be the case. And what I've been working on this year is unblocking and reprogramming that belief. And um, number four is spiritual, and that's my meditation practice and breath work, and this is my non-negotiable. If I don't have time to journal, if I don't have time to do other parts of my daily practice, this is my non-negotiable thing that I have to do every single day, no matter what day of the year it is, Christmas, birthday, kids' parties, I have to meditate for at least 20 minutes every day. Usually I do that twice a day, if not more, but when time doesn't allow, even if it's just 10 minutes, it's in there, and... I really feel the benefits from that and that all those four things together really do create space for true, long-lasting, root cause, individualised healing and that's what I'm here to show you how to do. This is taking healthcare into our own hands. This is what taking responsibility for ourselves looks like. 
So I hope that you can see from this that I really do practice what I preach in terms of implementing these theories and models into my own life so that following this podcast, you know that I'm not just spouting out a load of information, but these are things that I've implemented into my own life to find wellness, uh, to reach a sense of wellness. And mostly, I wanted to show you guys everything. You know, I wanted to use this episode to tell you guys everything that has ever happened with me and that is going on with me because people, you know, who have podcasts or write about health or give talks about it, it doesn't mean their lives are perfect. It might look that way when we're talking about our health and, you know, we're, we're kind of giving advice, but the threads of our lives are so intricate and so deeply nuanced that what we've been through in our life can contribute to a whole range of things. And those things shape us and make us who we are. And I'm proud of how it's made me and I'm not ever going to sit here and pretend that I have all the answers but I have done many things in my life which have led me from being disabled to being totally able-bodied so I hope that I can use that knowledge that I've acquired over the years uh, alongside guests that I'm going to have on the show to help you in your journeys and to show you that you know these things happen to everyone even people whose lives seem to look perfect from the outside but it doesn't matter, we can fix it. This podcast is here to show you how. So lastly, before I stop rambling and let you get on with your day, for those who contact me asking for sessions, at the moment I'm not doing any personal health coaching because there's only so much I can focus on at once. And that had to take a back seat so I could focus on the podcast and my writing and my children and healing. But I do hope that this podcast will help you anyway in that respect. And I'm always around on Instagram to answer questions, so please do follow me there and ask away. I will, however, be offering these services again in the future. I'm not sure exactly when, but I am planning on creating something very special to help guide people back into wellness. And of course, I will keep you updated on that. So thank you so much for listening all the way to the end and for joining me on this journey. I hope you'll stick around. Because when I say that I have some incredible guests, I really have some incredible guests on this season. You won't want to miss the last episode of the season in November. Trust me, it is going to be unbelievable. So please stick around. Please also make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast. I know it can be a bit annoying to do that, to take time out to do it, but it not only helps me, it does help other people to find the podcast so that they can get access to this content. So if you enjoy it and you want other people to enjoy it, please do that. Please also share with friends. That's my favourite way of sharing podcasts. Some of my favourite podcasts are ones that have been recommended to me by friends. And if you want to support me with this podcast, please consider donating on my crowdfund page to help this podcast keep going for as long as possible. For now, stay well, stay healthy and stay happy. Recondition Podcast is proud to support Solace Women's Aid, who supports survivors of domestic abuse and sexual violence, working with over 27,000 people each year to build safe lives and strong futures.